Now, I realize that maybe for some of you, that may have been one of the first times you read Leviticus 16. It may be the first time you actually contemplated what was in Leviticus 16, because oftentimes when we read God's Word and we get to Leviticus, we get discouraged, don't we? Um, Because there's just a lot going on in that passage that we're saying, what does that have to do with us, and how, how is it that God wants us to take what is there, in particular in this Old Testament passage, it's all about goats and bulls and blood and offerings and sacrifice, and what is all that about? Friends, I just I want to tell you this morning, just like we talked about last week when Jesus was on trial and he appealed to the testimony of Scripture, that testimony of Scripture was a reaching back into the Old Testament to say that Jesus identified himself as the fulfillment of so much um, of Old Testament Scripture. I didn't say all, but so much of the types and the shadows and the things that were pointing to him ultimately as being that sacrifice once for all. And as we come to Leviticus 16, we come to a passage that is talking about what's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Um, So this morning, just before we actually get into my message and some preliminaries here, I just want to caution you. Um, It's very easy to get glazed over when we study this particular passage of Scripture because we're going to be dealing with some weighty things. And I just want to caution you, um, if you need to pinch yourself, if you need to kind of stay awake, um, it's going to be easy for you to drift. And I recognize that, and if I see you fighting, um, I will not be upset with you. But, but understand, we, we have some legwork that we need to go through in order we, so that we can see the richness of what is taking place on the cross, and then ultimately to apply that to our lives. So um, uh, let's, let's, let's just take a moment right now and pray and ask for God's help here. Lord, we thank you that our time together is such that we have the privilege and we have the freedom and we have the time to study your word, to mind what it says, and Lord, to see what it is that you desire for us to see about yourself and about what you desire from us and what you have given for us, and Lord, how that all uh, impacts our walk with you. And uh, Lord, we ask for wisdom, we ask for humility, we ask, Lord, for a teachable spirit, we ask, Lord, for the ability to, to, to stay focused, Lord, so that we can see ultimately the nuggets and where they came from and how they got there and how they connect. And allow me, Lord, as your messenger to be, uh, Lord, faithful to you, to speak your truth in such a way, Lord, that you would be revealed and you would be glorified. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Now, a number of years ago, 2006, I had a privilege to go back to Israel. I say back because many of you know I was born there. Um, Back to Israel to visit, though, uh, as a tourist um, in that country, you know, Holy Land trip. And a couple of you actually went with me uh, as part of that trip. We were just part of a trip that went. And, And of course, I asked my family, I said, what do you want me to bring back to you from Israel? Well, I asked my son, Gavin, and he said, bring me back a cross, something I can wear around my neck. All right. I said, fine. I'm sure I can find a cross there. Um, so as we went to Bethlehem, in Bethlehem in particular, they have some really, really good um, gift stores. Um, and, I mean, just beautiful stuff. Have anyone ever been to the Holy Land on a trip like that? And you go into these gift stores, and there's just absolute beautiful stuff. But when he said, I want a cross, I walked in, and I went to this section, and there's like 
just baskets and baskets of different kinds of crosses, all different sizes, all different shapes, all kind of, you know, sculptured a little differently. And I'm just like, okay, what in the world is he going to want? And so for me on that day, it was important that I got the cross right because I wanted the cross that would actually meet exactly what he was asking for. And friends, it's important for us as we pause here on a day that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and talk about the cross, that we get the cross right. Now, friends, the cross um, in our culture is in many places. You can see it in many places. In fact, uh, as I kind of pondered on this, um, you see it sometimes on TV in kind of background settings. Um, You see it hanging on the necks of entertainers. You see it as a prop in a secular concert of some sort. Um, You see it um, on professional athletes' hats, helmets, uniforms, earlobes, and necklaces. It's, it's It's almost as if wearing a cross or having a cross somewhere in the paraphernalia of your life is in vogue. Not because it communicates that you're truly a follower of Christ, but it communicates this idea that you are spiritual. And somehow being spiritual is what the cross is really talking about, and I want everyone to know that I am a spiritual person. And like I said, though, but it doesn't usually indicate that the person who is adorning this cross or putting this cross out there is a Christ follower someone who truly understands the gospel, wants to proclaim the gospel. There are some exceptions to that, though. So the message of the cross, although can so easily be distorted and commonplace, um, has become, uh, in many cases, a fashion statement. And as a fashion statement, it loses its power. It is drained. It's emptied of its power. And friends, it's really important for us today to understand that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's not foolishness to we who are God's children. We run the risk of allowing the cross to become emptied of its meaning unless we allow God's word to fashion, to shape our thinking and our understanding of what that cross is all about. Now, what, is it, what does it mean when you, when you see the cross? What, what comes to your mind? What thoughts do you have? What, what implications are there? That's the kind of stuff we want to be talking about today as we think through Leviticus 16. Because there's a connection here. The cross is not simply a peripheral issue. It is not simply a sub-theme of the Christian faith. The cross is the central theme. You might even say it is crucial to our relationship with God. And by the way, did you know the word crucial comes from a Latin word, crux, which means cross? Isn't that interesting? For something to be crucial, it has to be central, but that actual word, crucial, means cross. Because it was understood that the cross was central. And friends, it is central. It is the most important dynamic. And of course you say, well, isn't Christ central? What do you think the cross is referring to? Isn't the gospel central? What do you think the gospel is about? 
It's all encompassed with Christ and the cross and the accomplishment and the purpose of that. That is all part of God's plan. So the cross is not simply a one-time event that took place on the hill called Golgotha. It represents God's creation um, of the world. It represents uh, the, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only sacrifice sufficient to pay for the sin of mankind and to appease the wrath of God. And when I say it was part of God's creation, God created it as part of his plan ultimately that would result in him going to a cross and bringing reconciliation for mankind. It represents the ongoing promises and the benefits that come to those who have put their faith in the work of the cross, which is Christ dying on the cross. And so we want to get the cross right this morning. And in particular this morning, I would like to stress two words. Two words that you might say flow out of what took place on the cross. Two words that talk about the accomplishments of the cross and the implications of the cross on us. They're two kind of heavy words, um, but the first word is the word propitiation. Propitiation. And we'll define that in just a little bit. The second word is expiation. Propitiation and expiation. And you say, okay, you know, we're going to seminary, Pastor Rod. What's up with that? No, we're, we're, we're using words that are talked about in Scripture. And it's important that we understand what they mean rather than just say, okay, I can say it, but what does it actually mean? And this morning, I, I ultimately really want us to understand propitiation and expiation because they are so critically important to us understanding how the cross affects our lives not just in bringing salvation, but continues to bring health and vitality to the Christian as they're walking with God. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. This is one of the ways that we do that when we appropriate what took place on the cross to our lives. So why is this subject important for us? Here's the first thing. Because life is full of sin, is it not? Anyone here not sin this week? If you didn't talk to me, I want to find out your secret, right? But it is. It's full of sin. And the Bible uses a variety of words to describe the results of or the effects of sin on us. Here's just a, a sampling. We're dirty. We're defiled. We're filthy. We're vile. We're unclean. Secondly, why is the subject important? It's going to be a long statement, but hear this. Because too many people have embraced a weak an incomplete gospel that just stresses the love of God. And as a result, um, as a result of that, people are left questioning their forgiveness because they still feel unclean. Now guys, this is, this is an implication of a weak gospel. God loves you. Don't you want him to be your savior? Uh-huh. So, okay, you know, they go through the motions of whatever it might be, and they walk away and they say, okay, you know, God says he loves me, but I still feel unclean. What's going on there? I know I'm forgiven. That's what they said. That's what Scripture I'm forgiven, but I feel unclean. That's a huge problem within the body of Christ. It is an unspoken problem within the body of Christ, in particular in an arena where there's been a weak gospel. But that could also be true in our context today. And let's not play the fool and present ourselves as people who have it all together. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with memories. We struggle with the sin of our past. Even though we have come face to face with God 
by virtue of the gospel. We want to think through that. And what does God say? And how does he bring satisfaction to all that? Well, it could be the result, this, this feeling unclean could be the result of an unwise choice that you made in the past. Maybe an abortion, sex before marriage, stealing from an employer, cheating on a test paper, committing a crime. Let me just pause here and just say this. In my premarital counseling, in the times when I have had to counsel young people, one of the things, uh, or even post-marital counseling, one of the things that is struggled with is memories of relationships they've had with other people that they bring into their marriage. That choice to actually join together with someone else pre-marriage now is plaguing them in marriage. And at that moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. But now the result of that is they are being plagued with these memories. It's a reality, guys. Among people who truly love the Lord and are pursuing him, it is a reality and it is a constant presence. And people are, just don't know what to do with it. Okay? It could be an abuse that you have been the recipient of, physical, sexual, emotional. It could be this present ongoing struggle that you have with sin that leaves you hopeless and feeling like a failure. So all, these are just a sampling of ways in which um, we struggle with this whole issue of our sin and our present sin. And even though we are God's children, these are still things that are bouncing around in our hearts and our heads. And God does speak to those issues. And it's not just enough to say, you know, you're saved, forget about it. God gives much more specific instruction and guidance and direction for you to understand and to comprehend how he cleanses you and how you are right with him. And so this morning, we want to make sure that we see that as we unfold his word. So it's a struggle with thoughts that many people have in the privacy of their hearts, but would never express casually to others. Questions like, how could God love me? How could God forgive me? How can God cleanse me? Why do I feel so guilty all the time? Friends, this is the message of the atonement. It is for you, it is for me, and it's for all of us. And so we'll need to walk through Leviticus 16 together. It's going to be a little bit of a work walk, but we're going to need to walk through it. Um, we're going to then connect this passage to Christ and his work on the cross, and then we're going to spend some time pressing home the implications, okay? And let me also say this. In our home groups tonight, I really want us to stress the implications of this. I really created some questions that would help us kind of apply this to a number of different scenarios. And so we're going to be working on this even after our time here this morning. Friends, this is critically important. Let's jump in then to Leviticus chapter 16 at verse 20. At verse 20. And when he, that's the high priest, has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins and he shall put on them uh, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let 
the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, with this background, let's jump in to what I'm calling the background. All right, the background, Leviticus uh, chapter 16. Levit- Le- Leviticus chapter 16. And there's going to be three things I want us to see. We're not necessarily going to go through a chronology, but there's three themes I want you to see. Theme number one is going to be, I'll just list them for you here. Theme number one is going to be sacrifice. Theme number two is going to be humility. Theme number three is going to be holiness. All right? Sacrifice, humility, and holiness. So let's, let's go back to sacrifice and let's think through what is being talked about in here. Did you not notice when Matt was reading through this or when you were reading through this that this passage is just full, just chock full of sacrifice? Did you not catch that? There's bull, there's goats, there's ram, and it just talks about the specifics of what you do with the sacrifice and what you're doing with the blood. Now, in order, in order to understand the teaching of Leviticus, we have to understand um, that the book of the Exodus asks um, a profound question. And here's the question that Exodus asks. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? People are sinful. How is it that God can dwell among sinful people? Because God has a response to sin. And what is that response? Anyone anyone have an answer there? It's called his wrath. Oh, you're one of those preachers, Pastor Rod. You better believe it. That's what Scripture says. If you sin, the consequence is God's wrath. But that isn't necessarily the whole picture and the whole plan because God wants a resolve. And that resolve ultimately is going to be found in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus teaches that the relationship between a holy God and a sinful people, unclean people, can be maintained by sacrifice. So we have these sacrifices then that are instituted among God's people so that a relationship with God can be maintained by the people and by God. Now, what are all these sacrifices? There is the burnt offering. There's the grain offering. There's the fellowship or peace offering. There's the sin offering. There's the guilt offering, just to name a few. This is no small matter to God. I mean, you've got all these different offerings being talked about. This is no small thing. Man's sin is no small thing to God. It's not just this little thing you've got to get over in order to you know, have all the grace that you want. This is a huge problem for man. It's a problem man cannot solve by himself. He has no hope. And the only solution comes from God, and it comes ultimately through a sacrifice. That's what Leviticus 16 is beginning to show us. Now, each of these sacrifices that were made um, at specific times and in specific ways uh, were directed by God. The, the, the one we're going to look at here um, on the Day of Atonement, um, there's a number of different sacrifices that were made, but here's some basic elements to the sacrifices in, in Leviticus 16. First of all, the sacrificial animal had to be spotless and without blemish. So as you have you know, your, your you know, herd or your animals running around your backyard, you're picking out the best 
because ultimately that's the one that's going to be sacrificed. The one for whom atonement was made had to present the animal to be sacrificed and had to lay his hands on it. Now, the laying of the hands um, was a really a, a symbol of the confession of sin um, or confession of guilt by the sinner and the transference of that guilt to that animal. Okay? So not only is this, this animal spotless and without blemish, when, when, when the, the priest laid his hand on there, it transferred symbolically the guilt of the person or the, 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 the people that person was representing onto that particular animal. The animal then was accepted for sacrifice by the priest. The animal was slain, which signified the necessity of death as the proper payment for sin. And after sprinkling the blood, and, and if, you read, you know, if you caught that, there's a lot of sprinkling of blood that's going on. There's a lot of placing the blood on the mercy seat and stuff like that. And it, the, the Holy of Holies was a bloody place, okay? Which is a, very, is a huge offense to our contemporary culture. But there's a reason for it. We sang about that today, right? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the... Okay, and, and that obviously is a picture of Christ and it's pointed to Christ, but Christ is is drawing back from all this that's taking place in the Old Testament. Now, after splitting the blood on the altar, the animal was burned, its smoky fragrance uh, was raised toward God uh, in heavens, and that was a pleasing aroma to him. Okay? Now, just as I went through that, you might even be thinking of New Testament passages of Scripture where some of these words and expressions are being used. Okay? So there's a lot of Old Testament expressions, a lot of Old Testament stuff that is in the New Testament, but you, you have to catch it and know what is there. You have to have a good understanding of, in particular, the sacrificial system to understand some of the implications of what's taking place in the cross. So there certainly is this theme of sacrifice. Next theme is humility. Humility. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, although a, a you might want to say, a, a special time, was not a time for celebration. This was a somber time. This was a time for confession, for mourning, for humility, for fasting, for repentance. And this was incredibly, an incredibly serious time. So it was definitely a time to humble yourself before God. Okay? This was not, you know, oh, great, it's the Day of Atonement. Let's have a big party. No, it was, it's the Day of Atonement. This is important to God. And let us do the things he's asked us to do and to do it in such a way where we are humble and we are confessing our sin and we're repenting of our sin and we're um, just uh, really mourning over our sinfulness. So there's this humility. There's also this theme of holiness that is, is uh, throughout this whole, uh, this whole chapter. But in particular, I want you to notice Leviticus 16 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Ah, that should draw our attention. There's something going on here that the writer is saying, hmm, I want you to pay attention here. What's going on? Go, if you would, please, to chapter 10 of Leviticus, chapter 10 of Leviticus, and we'll find out what Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, did that so offended the Lord, and ultimately they died. So... Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1, and we'll read through verse 3. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each 
uh, took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. I just want to pause there. The point here about this unauthorized fire is that they attempted to worship God in their own way, according to their own thinking, and without regard for what God had already told them. What does that sound like? It sounds like a lot of people that try and do church in their own way, according to their own thinking, setting aside this, we call the Word of God, as the guide for how you do church, how you approach God. God spells it out. He lays it out and says, this is how I want you to do it. Nadab and Abihu, apparently we're told here, set aside what God wanted, and they offered strange fire. They were serving as priests, but they were like, you know, I'm going to do what we think is best. Now, they may have been good intentions. It may have been a short, you know, a, a kind of a shortcut or whatever. Did you, did you catch when, when we read Leviticus 16 how long that day would be? You know, why don't you gather at Gateway Bible Church and we're going to do Leviticus 16. It's going to be a long day because ultimately that goat that was sent for Azazel would have to be taken 10 miles away. And then that guy would have to return, and then he'd have to bathe and all that kind of stuff. It's like, that was a long ceremony, the Day of Atonement, right? And this is, I mean, there's so much packed in there. Why? Because it was important to God. Because God is holy. Sin must be dealt with. Well, they didn't follow his plan. They did their own thing. And it says, fire, they, uh, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You think he was upset? I think he's holy. Not upset as we would think someone to be emotionally like, I can't believe you did that. No, it's I'm holy, and here's the consequence. God is not just this emotional, out-of-control being. He's very much in control. And when you violate his command, there are consequences. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among these who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I just want to emphasize here what God says. He says to his people, among his people, the people of Israel, among them, I will be sanctified. In other words, my holiness will be on display. My holiness will be seen and will be glorified among my people. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is, I will be glorified among the peoples, the nations. God is concerned about his reputation within his family as, as well as outside of his family. And the implication for us then is, Within the church, we have a responsibility to make sure that we are, we are functioning with the backdrop and the context of presenting God as a holy God, not some happening dude. Right? We want to present him as he really is and trust that when we present him as he really is, that through that, he is being glorified, his name is being honored. And then among the peoples, that we are certainly proclaiming his holy character and his glory for everyone to see. 
sometimes in our effort to be relevant, we, we diminish the character of God. And friends, that is the most irrelevant thing that we can be doing. Because a diminished God is not a complete God. A diminished gospel is not a complete gospel. Okay? Now, let's jump back to Leviticus chapter 16. So Nadab and Abihu were an example of a reason why God is going to say what he's going to say right now. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So ultimately what he's establishing in chapter 16 is that they are to come once into the Holy of Holies, okay, as opposed to any time. There's a specific time, there's a specific way that you are to come in and to go about this, this particular ceremony. So we look at the, the next thing then is the ceremony. We've gotten some background, this, this whole theme of sacrifice, humility, and holiness throughout this chapter, but now let's look at the ceremony. So we're circling back again, thinking through what is the ceremony that takes place on this Day of Atonement. The only day that God would allow the high priest to enter the holy place was on the Day of Atonement, but there are some requirements that must be met. First of all, there is the requirement of the changing of garments. And if you caught that, the priest must take off his priestly garments, bathe, and put on some simple linen garments. Um, these are holy garments. There's a tunic, undergarments, a sash, and a turban. Okay? Then there were all these extra sacrifices. And if you caught that, there was a sacrifice that he had to make for himself, then for his family, then for the actual tent of meeting. All right? There are all these sacrifices that needed to take place, preparations, cleansing that needed to take place before the actual atonement sacrifice for the people could be made. So he had to atone for his family. He had to atone for himself. He had to atone for the actual place of meeting. And he had to himself cleanse himself, go through the ceremonial cleansing and change his garments. This is all preliminary to what ultimately was the main focus of the day, but, friends, that main focus of the day was simply a foreshadowing of what ultimately was going to be the sacrifice, and that would be Christ. Now, there are these two goats, and this is kind of where we want to kind of begin to kind of funnel things down. Aaron shall offer, this is verse 6 of Leviticus 16, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and uh, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And just, just think, when you see Azazel there, think scapegoat, okay? Just write in the word scapegoat. It's a word that we use in our culture. This is where it comes from, okay? Usually the scapegoat is, is the uh, the the person that is getting blamed for something, although maybe they're not responsible for it, but they're the ones that all the blame is being put on, and they're going to receive it so that I don't have to. That's the idea of the modern context scapegoat. Uh, there is a connection then to what's going on here. Verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the, the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away in the wilderness to Azazel. So there's these two goats, one for a sin offering, 
one that would ultimately be the scapegoat. The two goats together paint a beautiful picture of what I believe is full atonement accomplished by Christ. The words propitiation describing one, the word expiation describing the other. So we just kind of begin to unfold this. Now, friends, don't fall asleep now. This is, we're, just, we're just getting to the place where all this starts to kind of come together, okay? Because ultimately, when we're done, and you look at the cross, I want you to be able to see the implications of the cross in its fullness, okay? Now, the first goat. Let's focus in now on this first goat. This first goat is the sin offering. It is the one that we would say is the propitiation goat, this sacrifice atoned for the sin of the people. So as, as the two goats were presented, a lot was cast. One was determined to be the sin offering. The sin offering was going to be killed. The other one was going to be the scapegoat. So we're talking now about the one that was going to be killed, the sin offering. Um, and this, this, this sacrifice ultimately um, was a, a sacrifice of death and bloodshed that was necessary uh, to, to demonstrate that there had to be a sacrifice, there had to be death for sin. Now, all of the daily sacrifices declared the same message, but what made this a special sacrifice was what the high priest did with the blood. The sacrifice was made, but now he goes into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles it according to God's instructions within those holies of holies, in particular on the mercy seat um, which was the seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And the placement of the blood symbolized the stilling of God's law, that uh, hit God's law's demand, might want to say, and the appeasement of God's wrath. So this sacrifice and ultimately the blood being sprinkled there in the tent, in particular on the mercy seat, which covered then this, this uh, Ark of the Covenant, then this ultimately was a sacrifice that appeased God's wrath. It satisfied the law's requirement, what was necessary to be accomplished, and it appeased God from actually exercising his wrath on the people because his wrath was poured out temporarily on what? The sacrifice. So the people deserve God's wrath for their sin, but there was a substitute. That substitute was the sacrifice. The sacrifice was was sacrificed, was killed, was put to death. The blood was sprinkled. That then appeased God, satisfied God's requirements temporarily. And that's why this had to be done repeatedly, once a year, for the nation. Okay? That's the first goat. The second goat is the scapegoat. And this identifies expiation. So this, this goat then was, 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 was not killed in this way. The high priest literally placed his hands on the neck of that goat and he confessed the sin of the people and there was a symbolic transference then of the guilt of the people put onto this goat. And then this goat was led out into the wilderness by a man that was appointed by the high priest, 10 miles we're told, and then left there. The implication is left there and ultimately that that little goat would die probably because of the other animals that were there. But the, the key word here is that it was taken away. All right? This, this goat was taken away. Our, the sin that was put on this goat was taken away. The guilt that was put on this goat was taken away. And so now we have these two words, propitiation, which you have up there, 
is the payment necessary to satisfy and appease God's holy wrath. Expiation is the consequence or result of propitiation, i.e. the removal of sin and guilt. And let me, let me kind of add a few things to that. Um, with propitiation, the issue then is God's holy wrath being appeased. With expiation, this has to do with our guilt being removed. So one is God's holy wrath being appeased. One has to do with our guilt being removed. And you say, oh, okay, well, what's the implication of that? We're going to get to that. Um, you might want to say because of propitiation, God is temporarily wrath-free. And because of the scapegoat, God's people then are temporarily guilt-free. One has to do with God and what he's doing with his wrath. The other one has to do with me and what's happened with my guilt. Okay? I'm just trying to make those distinctions. So every year on the Day of Atonement, God's wrath for, for sin would be averted through the bloody sacrifice of one goat, and Israel's guilt would be transferred to the scapegoat that symbolically took it away. So these, these pictures are, are, are incredibly uh, um, clear as to what is happening with our sin and our guilt, but they also have implications as we move ahead now um, to what Christ did on the cross. So here's the significance. This is not the implications. This is the significance, and it's Christ. And we're going to walk through a few things now from the book of Hebrews. You may want to turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews because I don't have all the passages up there for you. In fact, I don't think I have any of them, but we want to look at these passages. Hebrews is not an easy book to study, in the New Testament, because you have to have a grasp of the Old Testament to really grasp what is being said by the writer of Hebrews. So many people avoid it. Many people just kind of look at it and say, I don't know what this is talking about. I'll move on. All right? And I just want to encourage you, at least with what we're looking at, you have some background now of Leviticus 16 to understand the implications of what are being said in these particular passages. And the book of Hebrews ultimately is presenting Christ as the only son, the only solution, as the Savior, the only sacrifice that meets all the requirements necessary to pay for the sins of mankind and to provide reconciliation. Now, having said that, here is some of the significance when they went through the, the Day of Atonement um, ceremony and the sacrifices were made, all, the, all of that was pointing ahead, and they saw in that their need, first of all, for a mediator to act for them um, before their holy God. They also needed a sacrifice to atone for their sins. They needed help, and the answer to that help or, or answer to that cry was Christ himself. And we see three things then that flow out of the book of Hebrews that help us. Christ then in the book of Hebrews is presented as our high priest. You have to be qualified even to be a high priest. You don't just say one day, I'm going to be a high priest. You know, as, as many people do today, you know, athletes will walk into a kid's classroom and, hey kids, I just want to tell you, if you just put your mind to it, you can be anything you want to be. Oh, wow. What great wisdom. Well, listen, you can't just put your mind to it and everyone want to be the high priest. It doesn't happen that way. Even if you want it, you may not get it. God would select who that high priest would be. Okay? And so it was a divine selection and divine opportunity. And one time during the year, he was able to go into the Holy of Holies. So this is like premier thing that a high priest would ever, ever do. Now, 
Here's Christ, who's described as our high priest. And turn, if you would, please. You have the passages there, Hebrews 7, and beginning at verse 24. The high priest's ministry in the tabernacle was, a, was temporary because he would die and a new priest would come and take his place. Beginning at verse 24. But he holds this priesthood, talking about Christ, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, not temporarily, not for a season, all right, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here's just this wonderful picture. Jesus as a high priest is functioning in that priestly role, not temporarily, but forever. And he's able to save us to the uttermost in the fullest extent. Everything is accomplished by this high priest because he is constantly there making intercession for us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even though, or even through, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Did you get that? He's entering as the high priest into the holy of holies, not by means of, what, goats and calves, but by his own blood. So in other words, Jesus as high priest, unlike the other imperfect high priests, entered the holy place only once. And through that one sacrifice accomplished all that is necessary to satisfy the wrath of God and obtain eternal redemption for mankind. He is the high priest. Being the high priest, though, was not all he was. He is also our mediator. Hebrews 9, 24 uh, continues on here. And as, our, as the high priest, get this, um, he is the high priest and ultimately here as the mediator, he is the sacrifice. He has two functions. He goes into the Holy of Holies as the high priest, but he also goes in there as the sacrifice, Okay. He offers himself. He is acting as our mediator. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Let me get that picture. The temple, the tabernacle, all those were a copy of something that was in the heavenlies. And Jesus doesn't go into the temple. He doesn't go to the tabernacle. He goes into the presence of God. Okay, that's what it's saying here. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all, to put away sin sacrifice for, of, of himself. So we see that through the sacrifice, there is propitiation. There is this forgiveness. There is this, this appeasing, this satisfying, this, this the payment necessary to satisfy God's wrath. But there's also expiation, the putting away or the, the removal of sin or the removal of guilt. So he functions then as a mediator. High priest, 
but also as the mediator who is also the sacrifice. And then he is also seen in the book of Hebrews as our substitute, Hebrews chapter 10, now in verses 8 through 14. The work of Christ on the cross was done for the benefit of others. It has lasting effects, and it is final. Now, we're going to read this passage in just a minute, but understand this. Nothing more needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be added to his work. It was a sacrifice once for all. And here's what I, I want to make sure that we understand. We are to be satisfied with that which satisfies God. This is so important for us to understand. If the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath, then it should be sufficient for us that he has accomplished everything necessary not only to forgive me but to remove my guilt. This is going to be so important when you're talking about dealing with people who are struggling with particular issues of guilt. They may embrace Christ's forgiveness, but they may struggle with their guilt. And you have to say, well, wait a second. Isn't what Jesus Christ sufficient? And the answer is absolutely. We'll get back to that in just a minute. Let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. What do you mean? He, He never took pleasure in those things. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He he does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, those were all part of the requirements of the law, but they only pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. They didn't do the job completely. They did it temporarily. Jesus did the job completely. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should make a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. On the cross, Jesus took our place, and by virtue of him being that sacrifice once for all, it was the only sacrifice necessary. It was the ultimate sacrifice that was full, complete, and total, and sufficient. And it provides propitiation, forgiveness, satisfaction. To avert God's wrath, it provides expiation, the removal, and the cleansing necessary for his people. All right, that was all introduction. And seriously, I mean, there's a sense in which that's important, all right? It's been long. It's been a struggle. We've been fighting here, and now stay with me. This is the part where we begin to put, put the pieces together. But there was a need for us to take the time to go through, okay? Here's, here's some concluding thoughts. Yeah, concluding thoughts that are really the, the, the thrust of where we need to go here. Um, now, these might sound trite, uh, but I hope that the, the, the kind of meat that I put on the bones of these statements will, will make sense to you, and you'll connect with me. First of all, we must believe the gospel that we believe. You say, what does all that mean? I'm going to read a statement that I wrote very, very carefully. We must fight with the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word 
against the tendency to be drawn away from the cross because of the guilt feelings that we nurse when we remember our past with all its ugliness and sin. Let me just say that again. We must fight with the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word against the tendency to be drawn away from the cross because of the guilt feelings that we nurse when we remember our past with all its ugliness and sin. Listen, remember, our sin has been paid for. Our guilt has been removed. You were sinful. You were guilty. But through the cross, all that has been put away. It has been removed. Now, typically we understand propitiation. We understand that our sin is forgiven. We understand that Christ died to forgive us of our sins. What we typically struggle with and we fail to embrace is the implication of expiation. And I, I think, friends, this is, this is a, a doctrine, this is a principle that, that is so desperately needed within the body of Christ, and yet it has been neglected or just assumed. Too often we embrace the forgiveness that comes through the gospel, but we fail to apply the resulting consequences of that forgiveness, that is that our guilt has been removed. Now with all that we have said, listen to these texts of scripture. You know them, I will give you the references so you can write them down, but listen to them and see how this plays out. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Is that talking about forgiveness? Well, in a general sense, yes, but it's really talking about what? The removal of our guilt, the removal of our sin. Here's another one, Micah 7:19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our uh, iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Again, it's a whole picture of removal. Isaiah 38, verse 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sin behind your back. Now just understand, that is actually talking about forgiveness in one sense, because what God says ultimately, I'll just pause here and give this clarification, nowhere in Scripture will you find, at least in a good translation, that God ever forgets your sin. He always says, I will not remember it. And the picture here is he takes your sin and he puts it behind his back, which means I'm no longer holding it against you. It's been removed as far as consideration about your condition before me. So again, this is talking about expiation. It's been removed. And being removed means that it's, it's done away with. It's gone. Here's another one. Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Okay? Now, see, we, we often read these passages with the idea of forgiveness, not necessarily with the idea of expiation. And I want you to think about expiation in particular, and let's move to the next principle here. We, we must believe what we believe. In other words, if this is the gospel we hold to it, why is it we say, okay, I'm forgiven, but I still struggle with this guilt? Why is it that I have not wrestled with this guilt and actually appropriated God, God's sacrifice to that? That's a struggle, and we're going to get to that a little bit more. 
Secondly, we must learn to distinguish between feelings of guilt and true guilt. Some of you feel guilty real easy, right? And I could probably make you feel really guilty real easy. You could be manipulated. Um, you may feel guilty, but that doesn't mean that you are guilty. Understand that? You might have feelings of guilt, but that doesn't mean that you are guilty. So imagine you've been invited to attend a gathering at a friend's house, and you've been asked to bring a dessert. And, uh, of course, you know, one of those Evite things, and you just listed some people bring food, some people bring bread and all that kind of stuff, and your job is to bring the dessert. Well, you were kept late at work, and the traffic was really, really bad, and, and you got home, you quickly changed, and you finally got to their place, and as you're ringing the doorbell, it hits you, ah, what? I've forgotten the dessert. Now, no confessions right now. Okay, I'm not, this is not an anecdote based on people's knowledge, but I've forgotten the dessert, and the door opens, and your countenance drops, and you're like, ah, I forgot my dessert. I am so sorry. I know you asked me to bring a dessert, and oh, I feel so bad now, and the person who's hosting the gathering or the party says, listen, just, it's okay. I forgive you. Come on in, and just have a good time. Don't worry about it, and you walk in, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh. And you know that on your forehead is this L sticker or this G sticker that says guilty. And so now you're walking around this party and you're really not able to interact with people because all you can think about is the fact that you failed to bring your dessert. Now, you're still feeling guilty and you're not talking with people. You're just not yourself. And your friend sees you and they come up to you and they say, what is wrong? What's the problem? Why are you not interacting? You said, well, it's because I didn't bring the dessert. And they say to you, listen, you did fail. You are guilty, but I forgave you. I told you to forget about it and to enjoy yourself. But you're still wallowing in the mire of self-pity rather than allowing my forgiveness to free you to have a good time. You're experiencing false guilt. Because your guilt and your failure, you might want to say in this context, has been forgiven. But so often, we don't apply forgiveness even when it's granted. Or we might say we don't apply it fully until it's grant, when it's granted because we still are wallowing in the mire of this guilt that we have, which should be removed, but we are not willing to believe the gospel that we believe. You get that? Now, we started, what started as guilt in this scenario ends up with pride. Because the pride is, I can't believe that I would do that. I can't believe I would fall short. I can't believe, and how could I? And Listen, anyone here forget anything? I never do, just so you know that. Of course we do. And when you start beating yourself up like that, you're actually expressing pride that I, I'm too good to ever fail in this area. And I should never do this. Rather than saying, you know what, I'm a knucklehead and I forgot. Please forgive me and it's granted. And be done with it. Rather than just, right? Which is so easy to do. Here's the third thing. We must learn to take every thought captive by the gospel. As it relates to this whole arena of forgiveness, and propitiation and expiation, 
We must learn to take every thought captive by the gospel. Here's, the, here's the f- one of the first things under this. We must learn to place our memories and regrets, the key word there is regrets, in the shadow of the cross of propitiation and expiation. Let me ask a question. As you look at your past, are there anything, is there anything that you regret? <laughs> right? Probably tons of things. Um, but we must take those, those regrets and place them in the shadow of the cross of propitiation and expiation, and therefore not to dwell on them or to be sucked into the despair when God has promised that we are forgiven and we are clean. We all have regrets, things that we have done, things that we, we wish we hadn't done, and we dwell on them, and we can easily spiral into guilt and push away God's full forgiveness and his, his removal of our guilt. The second area is this. We all have memories of ways that we have been treated. And I, we're touching here on some areas that may be uncomfortable for some. But I want you to think about this. Many of us, many of you, have had traumatic experiences. It would not be surprising to me that in this group that there are people who have been the recipients of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse of some shape or some kind. I mean, as a pastor and as I counsel, this, this theme comes up, and you wouldn't even know that this person may struggle with this or that, but it's there. Others, when they put their head on the pillow at night, suffer and struggle with regrets and memories and feelings of guilt that they relive in secret over and over and over and over again. Their spouse may not even know about what they struggle with. But in the quietness of their heart, at that time when it's all silent and you're laying your head on the pillow, there's a memory that comes to you, and it's a memory that you regret. It's a behavior. It's something that was done to you, and you relive it, and you relive it, and you relive it. And in all that, you say, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that I did that. I can't believe all that. How could God forgive me? Why would he love me? And all these things start to bounce around in your head. And friends, there's something that we need to apply when those things happen. And it's called propitiation, but it's also called expiation. And it's to remind us that when when God symbolically through the high priest laid his hands on that goat, he laid all the guilt of his people on that goat and it was sent away, symbolically showing us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, our sin was not only a payment necessary, but, uh, sorry, his, his death wasn't only a payment necessary, but it was also the provision to remove our uncleanness and our guilt away from us. Sure, we have regrets. Sure, we have memories. Sure, we relive things. But friends, can I just once again, afresh, introduce you to Jesus Christ who paid for your sin and by virtue of what he did on the cross, removed your guilt If you feel guilty, it's one of two reasons. Number one, you are because you don't know Christ and it hasn't been forgiven. Number two, it's because you're really not guilty because it's been paid for. But you're not willing to appropriate God's cross gift to your life. It's been removed. Friends, it's gone. But we choose to bring it back up. 
We choose to dwell in it. We choose to, to ask the questions, and how could God love me? How could he do all these things? How could he remove my guilt? The reality is, friends, we have a perfect high priest. We have a, one qualified as a mediator. We have a sacrifice who was uh, there in our place. And because of what he has done, we now are clean. Now, this is a fight to take every thought captive. Let me leave you with a couple of verses of Scripture. This is all preparation now for our time with the Lord, as far as around his table. The first one is in 1 John 4. It's not up on the screen. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he goes on and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also ought to love one another. And that's just what a beautiful picture of forgiveness and restoration among God's people that is rooted in the kind of forgiveness and restoration that God gives through propitiation. We offend one another. Forgiveness means it has truly been transacted. We are, we are, we are no longer uh, experiencing wrath with one another. Here's 1 John 1, 9. Get the themes here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You ever wonder why those two words are there? To forgive us and to cleanse. One's about propitiation. One's about expiation. Okay? Here's the next one. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sakes, for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only is there propitiation, not only is there expiation, but the other thing that Jesus Christ does is that he, by virtue of his death on the cross and our embracing of his sacrifice as the means for our salvation, declares us righteous. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was the sacrifice. It was on him that our sins were laid, that's that, that punishment, that sacrifice appeased God. It also removed our guilt, but it also identified us as those who are justified. We are, Scripture says, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus Christ is, in a sense, over us, the one embracing, receiving the wrath of God, protecting us because he is that sacrifice who covers and takes away our sin. Our sin is paid for. Our guilt is removed, friends. We are declared righteous. We are right with him. Friends, there's a lot more to say about this. And this might bring up a lot of questions, and I hope it does. But Jesus dying on the cross is no small thing. And our sin is no small thing because our sin required a sacrifice. And it is only through that sacrifice that we have this wonderful ability to interact with the God of the universe who, before the creation of the world, determined his son would come down the cross to provide that sacrifice, that means, that payment, that entryway into a holy God living with a sinful people. And friends, we are truly most blessed. Now, Lord, help us as we consider 
the battles in our heart because of our feelings, because of our struggle, because of the things that we've done. Lord, would your Holy Spirit have freedom now to work as we take this time to celebrate your table, your, your, your death on the cross by virtue of your body and your blood, Lord, would you allow us to contemplate what all that means by virtue of your forgiveness and the way, Lord, you have removed our guilt and cleansed us. May we come today and celebrate this Lord's table afresh with renewed understanding, Lord, that we are clean, that we are forgiven, that we are declared right with you. Lord, help us not to beat up ourselves with the things, Lord, that you have already paid for, that you already removed. Help us, Lord, to identify, Lord, the ways in which we have not truly embraced the gospel that you have given to us. And that, Lord, may this time truly challenge us and and draw us, Lord, to, to see you afresh, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.